Welcome to another episode of the Historical Society of New York Courts podcast, where we discuss why legal history matters. I'm Jacob Chen, a litigation partner at Diane Associates and your host for today's program. As many of you know, May is Asian and Pacific Islander American Heritage Month. With us today is the Honorable Doris Lynn Cohen to discuss her experience as an Asian American justice on the bench. Justice Lynn Cohen was first elected to the New York State Supreme Court in 2002 and appointed to the appellate term First Department in 2014. Justice Lynn Cohen is the first Asian American woman to be appointed to an appellate panel in New York State. During her tenure on the bench, she has been famous for issuing many decisions, perhaps none more famous than for her ruling in Hernandez versus Robles, where she found that gays and lesbians had a constitutional right to marry. And although her decision was reversed at the time, it was eventually vindicated when the Supreme Court of the United States sided with her many years later. Thank you, Anna, for being here with us today. It's my pleasure. Now, uh, let's just dive in. Can you tell our viewers when you first decided you wanted to become a judge? Unlike many of my colleagues, uh, I, it was never my life goal per se. Uh, I didn't go to law school thinking I would become a judge. In fact, through most of my legal career, before I became a judge, there were no Asian American judges. So it never actually occurred to me that I could become a judge. And uh, it wasn't until I helped start the Asian American Bar Association uh, and we, one of our mandates was actually to increase the number of Asian American judges. At that point, there were only three. And uh, we invited a lot of the uh, people who uh, knew about the process to come and speak to us because even though we were lawyers, we had no idea how one became a judge. And so we invited uh, Basil Patterson, um, who people know uh, because he's had a long and distinguished career at the time. He was the head of the Mayor Dinkins' panel, and uh, he's also the father of Governor Patterson. Uh, he said that, oh, we don't have many Asian-American judges because nobody applies. And uh, that always stuck in my head. And at one point, uh, I was at the AG's office, and I read in the law journal uh, that they had a screening panel uh, looking for candidates. And in my head, I essentially said, oh, the reason why there aren't that many Asian American judges is because nobody applies. I'm more than 10 years out of law school. I've been, this was for civil court, uh, thousands of times I represented people in, uh, at Bedford-Stuyvesant Legal Services and I knew the quality of justice my clients got, and I said, I'll apply. And so that started my journey, uh, so to speak. It was not as simple as uh, because nobody applies. It's very political. It's a very political process, um, whether you're going through an appointment or whether you're going for an election. Uh, and so I struggled through it. Uh, so can you tell us what happened that first time you decided to apply to become a judge? Well, I went through the screening panel and it's a very long application. Uh, I was screened by 25 people. I came out uh, as highly qualified and then the political process took over, which I 
frankly, had not really focused on. Uh, and so it was a long process. I did not get it that time. Uh, people came up to me and said, look, you have your foot through the door, just continue. And I did continue. I always felt that there was a secret book. Um, I would get through <laughs> the first volume, and then there was another secret book, volume two. And then when I got to volume two, there was volume three. I eventually ran uh, for civil court. I ran out of district that included Chinatown. Uh, up till then, there had been no one of, of Asian descent winning any office out of Chinatown, not for city council, not for assembly, not for state senate, and not for judge. And so the process that I went through was very much an electoral process. Uh, I was very fortunate that the community adopted my dream uh, and, uh, and they understood how important it was to break this glass ceiling. And so uh, it was a very difficult process uh, frankly, it was very racist. Um, my opponent, uh, frankly, was the same age, but he was white and he was male. So people say, oh, you look like a judge. To me, they would say, oh, you don't look like a judge. That's true. I said, do you want someone who looks like a judge or someone who acts like a judge? I think I can act like a judge. I think I would be a good judge. Um, and uh, on election day, frankly, people thought I lost because there, my opponent had hired clowns to parade through part of the district trying to get people to come. Um, and as I said, it was a very racist campaign. I was called chinky, chinky, chinky to my face when I had my daughter holding my hand. Um, and uh, it was a very uh, difficult process, but the community rallied many communities in the Lower East Side uh, helped me. Uh, it really was a coalition, and on the day of the election, like I said, I think people thought I lost when in fact I won. Um, and so it was a community victory. You uh, grew up in Chinatown, is that correct? Yes, I grew up in Chinatown. I went to school in Brooklyn because my father had a laundry in Brooklyn, so we woke up early and we would get on the train and I would be the only uh, Asian kid in the school. Um, there was an African-American uh, female there as well. And it was just the two of us and everybody else was white. Do you think the situation might be uh, different or I'm hoping better, <laughs> better now, uh, thanks to trendsetters like you, maybe the process now is easier for Asian Americans to find themselves navigating the political process in order to run for judgeships. Um, I would hope so. In, in fact, there have been an increase in numbers. Uh, what's been happening with COVID-19, though, is that there's a lot of uh, overt discrimination. And so I am um, scared, actually, that uh, we are going backwards. Um, in fact, most of my Asian American friends have reported um, an incident of discrimination or harassment when they're doing something innocent, like my, my daughter went to do laundry and she was called names. Um, and so I know a number of other people who had uh, incidents. And so it's the you know, perpetual foreigner syndrome 
that, uh, that our community complains about, that no matter how long we've been in this country, we're always thought as foreign. And so I'm concerned that the progress uh, we as a country have made, we as a community, as Asian Americans, uh, and I underline Americans have made, uh, we might have gone backwards. Um, and hopefully, um, actually, part of the work that I am most proud of as a judge is my work with the Franklin H. Williams Commission, which is the Chief Judge's Commission. Um, and we focus on issues affecting uh, minorities in the courts. And uh, what I am organizing uh, is a town hall for youth, uh, for diverse youth to talk about uh, discrimination, about uh, what is happening in terms of hate crimes, um, and uh, to kind of bridge communities, to bring people together. Uh, and that's actually going to be this coming Saturday uh, and uh, I am hopeful that uh, that will increase the dialogue and uh, make them really uh, thinking and caring and uh, understanding um, and bringing communities together. That's, that's really exciting to hear about. So I want to know, do you think there's still a shortage of Asian Americans who either get on the bench or even uh, start the process of becoming jurists? Yes, there is still a shortage. Uh, we still don't have anybody at the Court of Appeals. Uh, we have a few Asian American judges at the appellate division, but it's focused really on the first department. There's nobody in the second or third or fourth department. Uh, we uh, have a dearth of judges in other levels as well. Uh, so it's not just judges, but ju also uh, non-judicial staff. Um, part of the work that um, I am proud of is that uh, as part of the Franklin H. Wings Commission, I have focused um, some of our work to advertise uh, non-judicial positions in communities that don't normally have access. And so for the Asian American community, uh, when the the clerk's test uh, was coming up, it was important to advertise in the Asian papers to get people uh, to apply. And I'm uh, happy to say that uh, as part of that work, I'm seeing an increase in more Asian Americans in, uh, in non-judicial uh, titles. Uh, recently, uh, there uh, was a advertisement for um, court officers and uh, joining with the community, we did a press conference in the Asian American community to tell people because a lot of folks, you know, they don't have relatives in the court system, uh, so they don't know about the test. So uh, I was pleased to see that a number of Asian American court officers came uh, to the press conference to support that effort. And I was pleased to hear the stories that they had and how uh, having a job like that has changed their life, has changed their family's life. And so I think that is something that uh, hopefully we'll see more of uh, in the future. I want to go back to something you mentioned earlier about the first time you ran for judge and you talked about the uh, secret book. Uh, do you think it might be the case that for a lot of Asian Americans, uh, we might be really good at reading 
the public book, but not so well informed about the secret books and all the other layers uh, of the process that we don't see online, that we don't see publicly, and we just simply don't know about? I think that um, for a lot of Asian Americans, it's a matter of if you work hard, you'll eventually be rewarded and you'll eventually move up the ladder. Uh, that is unfortunately not always the case. And so part of the process of becoming a judge, whether it's appointed or elected, is really putting yourself out there and, uh, and having other people also support you and asking for help and building coalitions. Um, and so that's not something that we necessarily learn. Uh, we have not had many role models who've gone through that process. Uh, and so it is somewhat secret because we haven't had uh, that many people go through it. We don't have that many elected officials who can shed light on the process, uh, unlike other communities where other communities, they have elected officials who agitate and say, look, you know, we haven't had an ex-judge from my community in two years. It's our turn. Nobody really does that for the Asian American community. And so that we have really qualified, excellent candidates, but nobody really advocating for us. And sometimes that extra layer of advocating really helps somebody rise to the top. And uh, the cream rises because there's light shed on it, essentially. And so we don't really have that. Uh, as an institutional uh, background and foundation. And so we still need that. We still need to build that. Um, as we have more and more, that's why it's so important. I feel like part of my job is to mentor people. And I've mentored a lot of people to get them through the process because, you know, the first time, it's rare that somebody gets it the first time. And so, um, Sometimes we think it's because we did something wrong. We didn't get it first time and people just get so discouraged. It's part of our community. We need to encourage people and say, okay, that's all right. It's not personal towards you. We can listen to whatever criticism there are and learn from it, but you still got to just put yourself out, out there. Uh, what would you say will be some major differences between the first time you ran for the bench uh, back in, uh, was it the 2000s? Actually, it was 1995. It's ancient history. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, what would you say is some big differences between 1995 and, and the present environment, at least before COVID? I think what has uh, perhaps changed is that there are other Asian American elected officials. So we do have council members now, we have assembly people now, um, we have uh, state senators. We had somebody who almost ran for um, city, you know, who ran for citywide office. It's a different uh, framework. Uh, so when I ran, there was nobody. There was no elected official of Asian descent. Um, and so that made a difference. Also, the community is a lot more savvy now. So they are, they will vote. 
Uh, they certainly can vote in, in greater numbers, but people understand that to empower the community, we need to vote. And so, and there are a lot of young people who understand that. Uh, that was not the case. For my election, we actually had to teach people how to vote because people didn't know how to vote. They didn't know how to register, they didn't know how to vote. And we learned that some people thought they were voting, but they actually weren't voting because they would go into the booth, they put the lever down, they put the lever up. <laughs> and that doesn't register the vote. Um, now we have electronic voting, it's different. But we learned that because we actually taught people how to vote. And people said to us, oh, we know how to vote. This, you know, we do this and this. No, 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 you leave it down. Then you do the bar and it registers and it automatically goes up. If you push it up, it's not <laughs> So we learn from that. And, uh, and as each time there's somebody running, we learn more, the community learns more. So that's important. And so also, I think the community press understands how important it is to cover these elections. And so the whole community has matured. And also, I think that other groups understand that um, our, our community is underrepresented. Um, and that was not the case when I ran. In fact, um, there was a point where I was introduced, um, well, not really introduced. I was Sheila Abdusalam, who was a dear friend of mine, who went to the Court of Appeals. She and I came out as highly qualified at the same time, and uh, as well as a number of other people. And we were the two people of color. And the introduction that uh, essentially we got was there were six people who are running, they're all qualified. One is a minority. They meant Sheila, they did not mean me. I was counted as white. Um, and so I think people recognize that we are, as a community, some people recognize now that we are distinct from the white community, we're distinct from the African-American and Latino community, we are our own community and we are underrepresented. And I see some of my colleagues who are now running and they have that recognition. They are given that recognition that they are distinct. I was not given that recognition. I was lumped in as white. Following up on that, when you first joined the bench, uh, what was your experience like as an Asian American jurist? I was one of the first, so, um, I think all judges are tested, uh, but uh, the test that I got was a, an interesting one. Um, I was assigned to the Bronx, even though I was elected from Manhattan. And I was assigned to um, the very large calendar part uh, of landlord-tenant uh, for the month. And my first day there, there was a routine uh, request for an adjournment. So we had an unrepresented tenant asking for an adjournment and uh, the landlord was represented by a seasoned council, shall we say. And uh, the tenant asked for a routine adjournment. It was the first time the case was on uh, and she said, I need to talk to a lawyer. And that 
is very routine. First time the case is on, judges give an adjournment. If the landlord had asked for an adjournment, it would have been given if a tenant, well, in any event, I went by the book exactly what I could give under the law and the landlord's attorney says, judge, what are you using, a Chinese calendar? And you could hear, it's like there must have been 300 people in the courtroom. There was dead silence, except for this gasp, this collective, (gasps) what? And they were all waiting for the Chinese judge to say something. And I said to him, very quietly, I actually lowered my voice and I said, sir, what did you say? And then he kind of backtracked and said, uh, judge, are you using a Jewish calendar? I said, you know what? If I were you, I would step away from the podium and leave the room very quickly before you offend everybody in this courthouse. And he did. So I passed my test. <laughs> and I've told that story. Um, and, you know, appellate division judges, that really happened? I said, yes, that happened on my first day in the big landlord-tenant part, that was the test. It's, it's funny, it's not just like, you know, there's a, there's a joke that we all look alike. Many times, I can't even tell you how many times I've been confused with another Asian American. <laughs> even if I have on, um, on the bench my name tag, and it's a stipulation. The attorneys will write in some other Asian American judge's name. <laughs> it's unbelievable on the stipulation form of who they appeared before. It's some other Asian American. Even though I have my name tag there, they'll write the wrong name in. With so few Asian American judges on the bench, you would think it would be easier to remember uh, the ones who are there, why do you think uh, this happens? The confusing of you with other judges? It's hard to explain how one could do that um, because clearly my nameplate is on the bench facing them. Uh, my nameplate is outside the courthouse uh, courtroom, so they see it coming in and Clearly, they're there on a a case that is assigned to my part. So I can't really explain why they do that, but it has happened so many times. I've lost count. Um, I have had people write uh, my name in as part of the stipulation or the agreement. They write the judge's name in. They write Lori Lau, who's in housing court. They've written Oi Min Chin, who was in housing court. Uh, they've written so many other names. And, and when I was running for re-election, uh, I didn't realize this uh, at the time during my interview, but apparently one of the attorneys on my screening panel complained after I left to the other uh, panel members that uh, he had appeared before me on a small small claims case uh, recently, and I apparently, according to him, was very disorganized. Now, at that point, I was an appellate term judge, 
clearly did not do small claims court. And I had been a Supreme Court judge for 14 years. So Supreme Court judges do not do small claims court. But there are Asian American judges, other than myself, who are in small claims at the time. So clearly he had confused me with someone else. And unfortunately, I could not answer that. That was discussed basically after I had left the room, after my interview, I was not presented with that. And so I never got a chance to rebut that and say, what are you talking about? Um, this happens a fair amount. Um, and sometimes I've, I've had uh, attorneys come up to me and say, and you know, you're ruling on such in my case. And I know I didn't do that ruling. He had, again, they had confused me with some other judge. Um, and so it happens more often than you would think. Unfortunately, people you know, think in categories and uh, you know, we fit a category and they cannot go beyond that and discern us as separate human beings within that category, unfortunately. Not everybody is like that, clearly, but it happens more often than you would think. So when you were talking about the screening panel, uh, the attorney and the screening panel story, was that in relation to the 2016 election? Correct. That was one of the things okay. that apparently uh, the panel was upset about. How I did a small claims case, apparently. And in that event, uh, I, I believe the community uh, really rallied around you after the uh, treatment you received from the screening panel? Well, as somebody said uh, in the paper that this was unheard of for an incumbent judge who had not been called in, uh, had not been accused of a crime, had been just appointed two years ago to the appellate term. The year before, I was given an award by the New York Law Journal as outstanding female lawyer. Uh, among uh, a number of others. Um, I had just been given a Women's Leadership Award by the National Asian American Bar Association. I mean, it was just so crazy. Um, and clearly they had not followed the panel rules. There are panel rules as to how incompetence should be treated, as well as the ABA has rules. And that was clear that they had not. The community understood that. The community immediately said, what is going on? Uh, this has never happened before to an incumbent. This is crazy that it would happen uh, to uh, Judge Lynn Cohan, who has been held in high esteem by uh, bar Association, by the New York Law Journal, paper, I mean, the, uh, the National Law Journal, I mean, to, to have this happen, it was clearly, uh, in their mind, politically motivated. And um, not only the Asian -American, bar, uh, Asian American Bar Association and the Asian American community, but many communities came together. The uh, LGBTQ community was very strongly um, in my corner from the very beginning. They really blew the trumpet 
so to speak. And, uh, and then the Puerto Rican Bar Association, the Metropolitan Black Bars, and there's so many bar associations that stepped in and said, there's something wrong here. Uh, there is definitely politically motivated. And I think, you know, part of it is they thought that, you know, Asian Americans have no political power and nobody would stand up for me. In fact, they took over the steps of City Hall um, on my behalf on very <laughs> short notice, right after Labor Day. Right after Labor Day, when everybody was still on vacation, they took over the steps of City Hall to say, this is politically motivated. Um, the, the tenants bar, the consumer bar, there's so many people who came, and the law professors, so many people came uh, to say this was wrong. And I'm very, very uh, thankful that people stood up for judicial independence, not that they stood up for me, but that judges should feel comfortable rendering decisions without political fallout. Uh, and that's an important statement. In fact, one of the one of my colleagues said, "Who would stick their neck out?" Uh, because this is what would happen: is that the panel would go after you, and you would be abandoned. But you know, in some ways, I was. It, it, it was good that it happened to me because because people knew of my work. It could happen to any any of the judges. And, and, you know, hopefully people would stand up for that and say, this is wrong. I don't know. But I was very, very fortunate uh, that people knew of my work and they um, appreciated my work and they stood up. Um, I'm very, very grateful for that. Uh, I want to switch topics to uh, something which you talked earlier about being one of the founding members of the Asian American Bar Association uh, of New York. Uh, can you tell me about what it was like when the organization was first founded uh, and also compare it to what it's like now? When it was first founded, there were just really a handful of people in the room uh, and uh, we were trying to figure out what our role would be. Uh, is our role to be just another bar association? Is our role to advocate for the community? is our role to advocate for Asian Americans in the legal profession, uh, is our role to do both. Um, and I think that those initial struggles, um, also it, our community is very diverse. So we have public interest lawyers, we have corporate lawyers, uh, we have uh, people in small firms, large firms. And so there were some growing pains. Um, of recruitment, of getting people to be buy into this bar association uh, and to make it uh, diverse and to speak for the entire Asian American legal community. Um, and I remember initially it was a few public interest lawyers and then it was mostly folks in big firms. And I said, we really, we're losing all these people in smaller firms. We really need to bring in people and so I actually recruit, recruited uh, Glenn Lau Key, um, who was part of a small firm. It was uh, his dad and, and, and uh, him uh, in Chinatown. And, uh, and uh, he eventually, uh, he came on the board and he eventually became president uh, like two or three years later. And, uh, and he has really made a mark 
in the legal community of New York State by becoming the first Asian American president of the uh, State Bar. I take a little bit of credit for that <laughs> and to Bar Association work, um, and certainly he has run with it and has done a stellar job. Uh, but it's so important for, for us to, uh, to be part of the Bar Association network uh, to, um, to really, because I think a lot of us did not grow up uh, being told that networking is important. And networking is very important in the legal profession because that's how you, uh, you get your next job. This is how you get clients. This is how you get legal information. This is really how you develop as an attorney. Um, and so uh, having the Asian American Bar Association is a big step. And a lot of people who uh, got their start in the Asian American Bar Association, I'm proud to say, have gone on uh, to uh, other uh, more mainstream bar associations have taken leadership positions, uh, and uh, the Asian, Asian American Bar Association has grown uh, so that I believe we are the biggest, have the biggest bar association dinner other than, say, like the county lawyers or something like that. Uh, our bar association dinner is huge, uh, and uh, and. Uh, it's, it, it shows that our community, uh, as Asian Americans, we are part of the legal community and we certainly have room to grow, uh, but we also have made an impact. Um, so it sounds like it's not just networking, but also uh, community activism and community participation that's very important. Absolutely. And I'm proud to say that the Asian American Bar Association from pretty much in the very beginning had an uh, issues committee. Um, Rocky Chin, uh, who is an um, Asian American lawyer, very prominent in our community, and I were co-chairs uh, in the beginning. And uh, we uh, focused on issues affecting the community. And now we have such dynamic people who are working uh, pro bono in the community. So it's really grown. Uh, what what sort of advice uh, would you give to Asian Americans who are uh, either in law school or who have just recently started working as attorneys to become more involved in the community? I would say that uh, they are really needed in the community because they have the skills to help the community. It provides the community with access. Uh, it provides the community with a voice, and they can start small. They can volunteer for a small, discreet project. The Asian American Bar uh, has a legal clinic, for example, um, and they could volunteer for that uh, once a month or once every other month. Uh, that's a good way. Uh, and also, I would urge them to be involved in boards of various uh, Asian American organizations. Uh, the organizations really need legal counsel. They need people who uh, can give them advice. And even as a law student, believe it or not, you are equipped to give wise counsel uh, because you are being taught how to think in an analytical way. And often that is a very needed skill in, in uh, organizations. 
Uh, so, and also someone will say, oh, there's a not-for-profit law. Let me go look at it for you. Uh, those are our discrete tasks that uh, anyone can do and it's really needed. And what would you say will be the benefit uh, for Asian Americans who engage in a lot of uh, community activism and community organization? In these days, we are very frustrated, right? There's so much to do uh, for our community. Uh, COVID-19 um, hit, I think, the Asian community in some ways much earlier because uh, the communities face discrimination very early. They were blamed uh, for, or there were concerns about possibly catching the virus uh, from an Asian-owned business. And that didn't, didn't matter whether you're Korean-American-owned or you're a Southeast Asian-owned business. It was all, everybody looked alike. Everybody was uh, treated that way. And so a lot of Asian uh, business owners suffered uh, long before. Uh, and so it's really uh, the work that uh, people can do it would be really, really helpful. Just in terms of helping fill out forms to get you know, business loans, uh, somebody with uh, some sort of uh, legal training could actually be helpful in doing that as well. I guess I feel these days COVID-19 is, is really on everyone's minds. Yes. Uh, how, how has that affected uh, your work? How has that affected you being the judge? Well, it has uh, made me appreciate that legal information is so important. As people who have access to legal information, uh, as attorneys, as judges, uh, we have a role to play in the community and in the broader community, and that is to explain uh, legal procedures or legal process. And that's very important, particularly in these times. Um, for example, um, there's a lot of uh, misconception on what to do if one views some sort of discrimination happening at the time or something being harassed or, or assaulted um, it, because uh, somebody is blaming them for the virus. And there was a lot of miscommunication in the community about should somebody call 911, should somebody call the Attorney General's office, should somebody be calling the Human Rights Commission, should somebody be calling a national hotline. So as uh, people who are part of the community, I think that's an important role that we can play in terms of educating the community. That's a role that I have always thought that was part of my job as a judge in terms of uh, giving out legal information. So uh, even before this, you know, I helped write a book on how to represent yourself in, um, in civil court because there are a lot of people who don't have access to a lawyer. Um, they don't even think they need a lawyer um, because they don't know what to expect uh, in court um, and they may need a lawyer, but that sort of information is very important and having it translated into other languages uh, is, is particularly important and that's a role that I played uh, throughout my legal career. Um, and right now, you know, as part of the Franklin 
H. Williams Commission, which is the Chief Judge's Commission, uh, we are taking our role as commissioners very seriously, uh, even in these times where, frankly, much of the work uh, that the court and the judges are doing uh, can't be done in person. We are holding an online town hall for young people to talk about hate crimes, to talk about um, what their role can be as young leaders uh, if they see or hear uh, discrimination. Um, and so that's a role we as judges can play, we as lawyers can play. Uh, we all have a role in this. And uh, as we um, hopefully recover from COVID-19, uh, there'll be a bigger role for, for all of us. Well, thank you, Honor. Uh, thank you for taking the time uh, to, to come for the interview. Um, and to join the podcast, I'm sure the viewers and the listeners will be uh, will find your story very inspirational, and hopefully, there is a lot that we can learn from it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Historical Society of the New York Courts podcast. The opinions expressed in this episode are the unique experiences of the participants and do not reflect any opinions or policies of the Historical Society of the New York Courts. Discover more about the Society on our website at history.mycourts.gov. That's history.mycourts.gov.